nice. Okay, I'm so thankful for you all for being here. I'm gonna pin myself. That seems like that might be normal in this situation because I'm gonna have to do a lot of talking. Uh, yeah, I'm really excited to have such a wonderful group here this evening for the um, Ferguson Fund and the Shaping of Chicago presentation. Um, I'm a little nervous, but I feel like I know everyone here pretty well. So I'm hoping that will help me keep from being too nervous. Uh, before um, we get started, I just wanted to do a brief land acknowledgement because I think that it's really important, particularly for this research. Sorry to keep looking over here. I have lots of notes and uh, um, they're on the side of the, they're another device. Um, so I just want to acknowledge that where I'm broadcasting from is where many indigenous groups, including the Potawatomi, Illinois, and Miami sustained various lifeways prior to European settlement and uh, the, develop, or the creation of the United States. Uh, the subsequent dispossession and radical modification of the land occurred through many means, including violence and bribery. Uh, despite this, the Chicago area remains home to a large indigenous community representing several nations who not only continue to fight against the naturalization and repercussions of settler colonialism, but also create a present and future in conversation with indigenous knowledge and practice ways. So um, I felt like that was an important thing to start off uh, the evening with. Um, so I'm going to give you the brief kind of overview of what the plan is, and then uh, we'll, we'll, we'll launch into things. Um, it seems silly to introduce myself to a group of people that I know, um, but this will be in a place where presumably somebody won't know who I am. So I'll introduce myself a little bit. Uh, I'll talk about B.F. Ferguson, Benjamin Franklin Ferguson, the person, uh, the creation of the Ferguson Fund, and then we'll look closely at just two uh, examples, even though we'll probably rifle through a couple different uh, instances of commissions from the Ferguson Fund, but we'll really look at the Fountain of the Great Lakes, which is the first one, and then the uh, Illinois Centennial Monument, which is the Logan Square Monument, something that I live near, so I've thought a lot about, and um, I'm excited to, to share that. Uh, then we'll transition into some changes that happen in uh, the post-war era with the Ferguson Fund, and then hopefully we'll open it up for just kind of general reflection and conversation about the material and how it relates to where we are uh, now. So let's start with a personal intro here. Uh, I'm E. I moved to Chicago uh, to go to the University of Chicago in 2010. It feels like it wasn't that long ago, but it does feel, uh, wow. Uh, after I graduated, I taught at the city colleges for a few years, and I've also worked in various capacities with the Odyssey Project, which I'm very happy to see there are some Odyssey Project instructors and Odyssey Project alums. Shout out Odyssey, wonderful to see people here. Um, in addition to working in education, I am also a painter of cats. I'm a haver of a cat, uh, it's on the windowsill. I also paint landscapes and now I'm painting the Ferguson Fund statues. And added to this is a independent researcher, here I am. It's new, this is the first time I've done this. So this is a new thing for me, I'm really excited. Uh, somebody asked me the other day, who is this research for? Like surely you're only doing this because somebody's paying you. And, uh, it's just for me. Uh, I think it's a really fascinating subject. I hope that that will come out in the in the presentation. Um, and part of it is also just the love of Chicago. Uh, that's really why I do this kind of research. Um, it's been really wonderful to live here and I've, I've gotten so much from the city. Uh, I want to say a quick thanks um, to Illinois Humanities for the uh, Activate History grant that I was rewarded in the Ferguson Front um, Archive received in the 2021, earlier this year. Um, it was a huge boost of confidence for me, uh, kind of a belief in that the Ferguson Fund required more looking into that was really helpful. I also want to say thanks to most of the people who are here uh, for lots of talks and walks 
and looks uh, and patience and grace. And I don't feel like the project would have been able to get here without a lot of um, you uh, who are on the call. So I, I'm really appreciative of all of you here. Thank you. Um, and many who aren't as well. Um, couple quick more little intro situating context things that I think are, are worth noting before we get to, to Ferguson. I'm hoping that uh, if it's not evident that this research will um, show itself to be connected to some ongoing conversations uh, around public space, public art, um, monuments, sculptures, statues, um, not only in the United States in relationship to like Civil War uh, uh, statues, but also Chicago's own um, conversation about uh, its public art. Um, I'm specifically referencing the Chicago Monuments Project, which maybe some of you here know what that is. It was created last year, 2020, in response to the uh, understandable upheaval about uh, the citizens wanting to remove Christopher Columbus um, from the location uh, in the museum campus. Uh, so in response, the city was like, we're gonna create a commission that will look over these pieces of art. Uh, it seems like it's a little bit, uh, there's some questions around where the process is at the moment, but I think we are doing exactly what the, uh, the project is intended to do, which is facilitate public conversations about these pieces of art. Um, of the 500 pieces identified by the Monuments Project, uh, half of the Ferg Ferguson Fund pieces are included, so it seemed like there's a lot of connection between my research and the sort of ongoing conversations. Um, and I hope we'll get to some of those larger conversations or larger questions in a little bit. Um, okay, I'm going to get to nerd out just a tiny bit now on research method. I felt like, oh nice, I felt like it was worth sharing just a little bit about the research that I did as part of the presentation I'm about to give. Uh, the initial uh, application for the grant was to get into the Art Institute's archives. Oh, look at this, wonderful timing. Uh, to get into the Art Institute's archives and specifically be going through like the minutes of the Ferguson Fund, which I've seen references to. Um, doing research during a pandemic turns out it's kind of hard and those spaces, uh, have not been open to the public. Um, and it's been difficult to get responses from the libraries that have this kind of information, which I find particularly interesting uh, for me about the Ferguson Fund because it's very old and it's, uh, its mission seems so public so it, that the documents are available digitally, I thought it was kind of surprising. So instead what I uh, used was some of this stuff. I'm gonna start um, sharing screen now. Uh, so I used these lovely uh, annual reports uh, that are available on the Art Institute's website. Um, so they existed from the, I don't remember the earliest year, I think it's 1887, um, until 1936, I think is when you get a break in the annual reports. Uh, and I just found these to be amazing documents because in this period that I'm uh, looking at, uh, the Ferguson Fund, uh, Charles Hutchison was the president of the trustees um, and there is a lot of exposition knowledge contained in these annual reports. It's not only about like what kinds of paintings or pieces of art were um, uh, received by the Institute, but it's also lists uh, long descriptions of like uh, money received um, and things like that. So I found uh, them to be very useful documents to try to track the development. I'm just gonna stop sharing for just a second. Uh, I found them useful to try to track the um, Art Institute's conversations about the Ferguson Fund as it developed in the language of the trustees. Um, and that language, as we'll see a little bit later, really changes a lot and those documents start to taper off in terms of how much information that they provide, uh, which 
because I think there are a lot of administrators on this call right now appreciate the ways in which administrative change starts to change the documents produced by those administrations. I hope that's something that kind of can be revisited um, just a little bit. So I couldn't get into the archives. It was a bummer. I had to use a lot of digital documents. Um, and then I think I also, I'm going to toggle between sharing and not sharing just because um, get boring to look at a screen all the time. So in addition to, sorry, sorry, oh no, where are you? There we are. Is everybody seeing this? I'm gonna assume. Yes, good. Sorry. Oh, it's in a weird. Oh, it's in a weird thing. It's gotten smaller. Oh, give me just a second. Sorry. Let's try that again. Oh, practice. Oh, I don't know why that's Sorry, this is a tiny bit. I'm going to try a workaround. Thanks. Uh, I am going to say it's okay for people to see slides. I'll just make them a little bit smaller here for just a sec. Sorry, sorry. Give me just one second here. So let me just try this. You can see that now. That's cool. You can see all the images and slides. That seems okay. So uh, in addition to like these uh, Art Institute documents, I also was using a lot of books that some of these I already had. Uh, like the one at the very top here um, is a very special book for me. It's the Chicago Pub uh, Public Sculpture book that I bought while on a trip with a friend of mine who's on the call right now, which is really great, uh, in Milwaukee just like years ago. And in some ways, that's the book that really started this all for me is going around the city last summer um, and seeing as many of the sculptures as I could, I kept seeing Ferguson, the Ferguson Fund just recurring and a lot of the pieces that I saw in the loop and um, some of the pieces I was familiar with in Hyde Park. So uh, that is kind of the book that launched this research in addition with uh, all of the friends and conversations and stuff. Uh, and then of course not pictured is a million like digital uh, articles and uh, things I'm happy to make available to everyone afterwards. So let's, let's uh, get to the, uh, Ferguson Fund presentation here. Again, sorry for the layout situation. Um, feel free to drop in the chat if you have like a quick fix in mind. I'll see if I can implement it, but if not, that's okay. We're talking about this person right here. Uh, this is Benjamin Franklin Ferguson. He is the namesake of the Ferguson uh, Fund that we'll be discussing uh, today. So Ferguson was born in Pennsylvania to a lumber merchant family uh, in the 1830s, I think it was. Uh, he moves to Chicago after the Civil War, where he had served, I believe, in Alexandria, Virginia, uh, like overseeing hay bales or something like that. He had a non-combat position, as I recall from the research. Um, so he moves to Chicago after the Civil War. Uh, and is here, he immediately starts making connections with some of the lumber people who are in Chicago and have been here since the 1820s and the 1830s. Uh, he lives through the Chicago fire where he loses one of his lumber businesses and afterwards becomes a part of this, which is really small now on your screen, which is awesome. Oh, 
Never mind. Let me try. That's not zooming in for you though. Uh, uh, let's see. The South Branch Lumber Company is the um, lumber uh, company he's best associated with. Um, so this was run by, you can't see these names up here, but it's the Beedlers, um, who Jacob Beedler was an early lumberman who I think moved to Chicago in the 1830s and set up some mills in the area, uh, and his son, Francis uh, Beedler. So this is this is wholesale lumbering, essentially. And they're, according to a book on like lumber interests in the 1890s, uh, this is one of the one of the more profitable companies in the area. I believe a lot of their wood came as much of it did in this time from Michigan. A lot of this is like white pine that's being uh, cut down and shipped across the Midwest. Um, in addition to the South Branch Lumber Company, uh, one piece that I found the most interesting is uh, Ferguson's association with the Santee River Company, uh, which was a um, which was in South Carolina. There's actually a Ferguson, South Carolina, named after Benjamin Franklin Ferguson. Um, that was a, a mining town, essentially, uh, where they mined old growth cypress, yellow cypress. Um, and by the late, uh, by the 1880s, by the 1890s, there was a search for where lumber would come from. What are the other kinds of lumber that we can start importing into the region? Because the Midwest had been um, overlogged, essentially. Uh, and with large losses of uh, its its native um, trees. So uh, this old growth cypress starts to become um, some of the materials that are shipped up to the Midwest, uh, which is which is kind of interesting um, and a little bit sad to think about the amount of trees that were lost during this period. And I'm hoping we can kind of maybe keep this in the back of our mind as we go forward. Um, so let's see, we don't need to get there quite yet. Why did Ferguson want to start a fund and his name uh, is maybe a question that is worth just talking about real quick. Ferguson did not have, let's just see this, this mustachioed man. Uh, Ferguson did not have any children and his, he was a widow by the time he died in 1905. Um, but he had friends in high places throughout the city, including Daniel Burnham, uh, who we'll probably talk a little bit more about later, um, and Charles Hutchison. He was connected with lots of the prestigious businessmen and the well-known businessmen in the um, late 19th century. He gets convinced by a couple different people uh, that his funds, um, sorry, let me back up just a second. He goes to Europe uh, before he dies and he's really like bowled over by Paris and this kind of uh, decor of the city. And so when he gets back, he wants to um, use his funds to make Chicago into a great city, like the cities that he'd seen. So this is part of the legacy of why he starts the, starts the fund. Um, and he's told by Burnham and the other people associated with the Art Institute that they'll do him well and his money will only be used for the best sculpture. Um, so when he dies in 1905, Ferguson leaves a million dollars to the trustees of the Art Institute. Um, and we're gonna read real quick the language of the, uh, of the uh, kind of the mandate of, um, of Ferguson's money. So I'm just gonna read this real quick. This comes from one of those annual report documents uh, quoted from that. I think it's the 1904-1905, which is announcing the creation of the fund. To the Art Institute of Chicago to be known uh, as the B.F. Ferguson Fund and entirely and exclusively expended by it under the direction of the Board of Trustees in erection and maintenance of enduring 
statuary and monuments. And the whole are in part of stone, granite, or bronze in the parks along the boulevards or in other, other public places within the city of Chicago, Illinois, commemorating worthy men and women of America or important events of American history. The plans or designs for such statuary monuments and the location of the same shall be determined by the Board of Trustees for such uh, institute. So this is the, the guiding mandate um, for the Ferguson Fund uh, at the very beginning here. Um, so a couple of things to, to note is uh, maybe where the pieces are supposed to be constructed um, in the in parks along the boulevards, other public places. So in some ways, this is explicitly about Ferguson's money being used to um, decorate the city of Chicago and its public spaces specifically. Again, just kind of worth keeping in the background in terms of what happens with the fund uh, going forward. And the commemoration of worthy men and women of America or events in American history, also worth keeping in mind. Um, when this was first announced in 1905, uh, people were excited about this. They felt like this was a um, once in a lifetime offer from Ferguson to the city, you know, like a, a gift to the city of Chicago. Um, and there was much uh, made about how much it was gonna make positive changes for the city. Um, I wanna just briefly touch on the role of the board of trustees because that's gonna be the key piece of this. The board of trustees have control over the money. And at the very beginning, that mostly meant here's some notable board of trustees members. Uh, Chicago heads will recognize a lot of these uh, names. Uh, Charles Hutchison was the president of the board of trustees until he died uh, in 1924. And we'll see there's a big change that happens after Hutchison dies. So in some ways the fund is kind of over, um, Hutchison exercises a lot of discretion and control over how the fund operates in its early years. Um, but other notable board members, Martin Ryerson, um, you may not know, Ryerson's father also was a lumber uh, lumberman in Chicago in the time period uh, before uh, Ferguson, I believe. Uh, we have Daniel Burnham, of course, connected with 1893 and real estate architecture. We'll hear more about him. Clarence Buckingham of the Buckingham Fountain, Cyrus McCormick of uh, famously like McCormick Place, those kinds of, uh, that the legacy of that family. Potter Palmer's child is on this board of trustees at a later date also is um, Julia. Rothschild, no, uh, another uh, wealthy. So what's what I think is worth keeping in mind here is that the board of trustee members are composed of mostly like uh, the legacy rich white men of Chicago, stemming back to its creation of a city in the 1830s. Um, so I just wanna keep this in the back of our heads uh, as we go forward. I'm just gonna pause here to see if we're forgetting anything. Yeah. Um, I'm gonna make, oh, I'm just gonna show some examples of the, yeah, let's do that. Show some examples of the fund. So before we get into more information, I uh, just thought I'd go through a couple of examples of um, pieces that were commissioned by the Ferguson Fund that you may know if you live in Chicago, um, the Fountain of Time. So the first, this is the second commission, uh, commissioned in 1913 after um, the dedication of the first piece, which we're gonna look at in a second. It took a long time for this to be actually put in place in Washington Park because of the materials used to, uh, needed to create it. Very interesting story, Laredo Taft, it's worth looking into. We'll probably talk, it may, uh, I may talk about it a little bit more later. Um, this is one of my favorites, The Spirit of Music. This is in Grant Park, 
uh, dedicated in 1924. It's also a memorial to uh, Theodore Thomas, who was the first uh, Chicago Orchestra director, I believe. Uh, here are some other fairly famous pieces. Um, the bridge houses on uh, Michigan Avenue done by Henry Herring. Um, this is gonna be something we'll uh, hope to talk a little bit more about is this use of um, indigenous representation in the uh, Ferguson Fund pieces that they end up commissioning. So uh, the one the defense on the left is a representation of the Fort Dearborn attack uh, and regeneration. The one on the right is about the regeneration of the city after uh, the fire of 1871. Um, I'm just gonna keep going as with examples to kind of have, uh, I think in conversation with the former piece, uh, the Bowman and the Spear Spearman, also notable uh, framing what is now Ida B. Wells Drive, I believe, uh, uh, are notable pieces that were some of the last ones commissioned by the Ferguson Fund in its early stages, essentially before it went into its kind of dormant period. Oh, this is the last example we'll talk about. Um, the Republic, also known by some as the Golden Lady. Uh, I like to call it the Golden Lady. It's a replica of uh, a piece that was made in 1893. Here we see the original in the Court of Honor in 1893. The original was 100 foot tall, um, which is insane to think about. Uh, the replica is only a third of its size. Um, the sculpture is made by Daniel Chester French, who's a, a I believe worked on the Lincoln Memorial with Henry Bacon, who is the architect of this piece and a name we'll see again. Um, so eight, 1918 is like the at most active year for the Ferguson Fund. It releases or, or rather it dedicates, I think three different pieces, including this um, to commemorate the 25th anniversary of 1893 Columbian Exposition, which is a fairly important background to the Ferguson Fund in general, um, not only for the amount of uh, sculpture and the integration of sculpture into architecture, but I think it's worth thinking about this as a moment where a lot of the early players of the Ferguson Fund are gathered in different ways. Um, Little Laredo Taft is here, um, uh, Daniel Burnham is here, Charles Hutchison is here. Many of the people who received commissions from the Ferguson Fund all were a part of 1893. Uh, not to mention the fantasy to use the term, uh, I wish I could go into this a little bit further, but the nickname of 1893 of this um, is the White City. And one of the things I'm kind of interested in is the way in which the Ferguson Fund became a way to take the White City from 1893 and stretch it into the future and into different parts of the city um, besides just Jackson Park uh, on the south side where this is located. Um, so we're gonna try to have 1893 in the back of our heads and one way to help transition us here is uh, to talk about the first piece commissioned, um, the B.F. Ferguson Fountain of the Great Lakes, uh, given uh, made by Laredo Taft. This is Laredo Taft's first permanent installation in the city. Uh, he had other uh, temporary installations. Um, Taft also may not know this was a, a instructor at the Art Institute where he taught sculpture and gave a fairly famous uh, like lecture series. Um, I can't remember what it was titled off the top of my head, uh, but he is given the commission for the first uh, Ferguson Fund piece in 1907. Um, at the dedication in 1913, Laredo Taft um, 
talks a lot. He gives a fairly interesting speech uh, in which he kind of gives this narrative of how he came to have the idea. And he says, after 1893, Daniel Burnham and I, we were on a train going to Evanston and he was chiding me and other sculptors for not having made a representation of the Great Lakes. And so then I realized I needed to do this. Uh, and so he goes to work on it. Um, it's really interesting to, to think about the B.F. Ferguson Fund and the attempt to you know, uh, create these monuments and put them in public places. Uh, and Laredo Taft's lamentations in this speech that after 1893, like the spirit was gone. Nobody really cared about art. Nobody really was interested in building anything permanent. And he saw this as a, as a, as a great failure following the, uh, the Columbian Exposition. So I think the idea of returning in some ways to, through this piece um, is worth kind of just keeping that frame in mind. Uh, so it's um, dedicated in 1913. I just want to quickly show its original placement, um, which if you're familiar with the courtyard or the Art Institute, uh, it's essentially in the same courtyard now, but it's just been moved to uh, the east wall facing west, where here it would have been on the south, uh, north wall facing south and still in the south courtyard, I guess. Um, what I thought it's worth noting in its original position, so it gets moved in the 60s, um, is initially you could walk around it and um, Taft also designed, um, had the place in mind for a particular reason in relationship to like how the sun would rise and hit the, hit the sculpture. Um, when there was nothing uh, blocking its way, I think, um, at the time when it was put in place in 1913. Uh, but of course, with the movement, all of this is, is changed and you lose the ability to, to walk around it, which we'll talk about in a second why that seems uh, notable. Uh, I just want to quickly produce a slightly larger <laughs> image uh, for those who aren't familiar with this piece. Um, and I'm just gonna like briefly stop share here, remove pen here. Um, I'm just kind of curious if anybody has any immediate associations with that fountain of the Great Lakes or have any feelings about it or if the images or the figures call to mind anything. Um, just wanted to like pause and create that space for a reflective question. I think part of what I'm uh, trying to think a little bit about is how to read um, the sculpture. And I asked that in relationship that something, uh, let me bring my screen share back up here. In relationship to something that uh, Tap says uh, at the dedication. So it's a representation of the five great lakes Right, it's like Lake Superior spilling into Lake Michigan and, uh, oh, can I do this off the top of my head? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> Lake Superior is pouring into Michigan and Huron. And they empty into Erie and at the very bottom is Lake Ontario reaching for uh, the Atlantic Ocean. Um, that's just like loosely, the I think that's right, the representation. Uh, one thing that really struck me is during the dedication speech, uh, Taft made an explicit uh, comment on 
the figures that I thought was really notable and I wanted to share. Um, so he says, some have thought my personifications of the lakes are or should be Indians. Naturally, the idea suggested itself to me, but was never seriously entertained since the Indian type of womanhood is hardly our ideal. While classic Diana in moccasins and feathers, a prefied characterless Indian is no longer acceptable in art. Back of this, however, is the feeling that these creatures should be of no time nor race. They're the Danaids of the new world, whose immemorial task was solved for a moment out of the canoes and campfire of the Redskins. One of the things that I started to think after I read this uh, speech of the dedication is I wondered if we could, or myself could see these figures in conversation with that insight about um, the reason why these were not chosen to be, as he says, Indians. Um, I think maybe we can cash that out a little bit later in the conversations, but I just want to posit the idea here that like, um, do these, or rather ask the question, do these look like ageless figures um, or why for Taft might these, might he want to articulate these as timeless figures? Um, and I also found the use of Daniids in his uh, speech, something that really struck me as well. The idea of this kind of pose that we see here um, as being something like uh, the punishment that's received in the Greek um, story of the figures who I believe are punished for killing their husbands. Um, I just thought this play was really fascinating. Uh, maybe I'm misrepresenting that, but I think that the, I wanted to posit that his insight about refusing or why he didn't choose to represent these as indigenous figures are actually here in the representation that we see. I want us to just kind of like, uh, maybe I'll just ask you to like entertain that idea for a second and maybe we can come back to it uh, in just a little bit. Um, I'm gonna kind of play with the idea of vision a tiny bit more and talk about the back of the sculpture of the Ferguson Fun Fountain here. So when you could walk around it, which now it has a gate and it's blocked, so you can't see the back of it. You can like peer if you go to the Art Institute and the courtyard is open and not locked. You can peer behind the little gate and you can see something of this uh, plaque and this etching, but I thought it'd be worth uh, kind of bringing it to the forefront um, as I thought its disappearance was really notable. So on the back it says, Benjamin Franklin uh, Ferguson bequeathed and trust the trustees of our Institute of Chicago, a fund of $1 million to be known as the BF Ferguson Monument Fund. The income derived from the fund must be used for the erection and maintenance of enduring statuary and monuments in the parks along the boulevards or in other public spaces within the city, commemorating uh, worthy men and women of America or important events of her history uh, in the year of 1913. As I uh, started to reflect on uh, the idea that we can't see this part, I, I thought that that was a, I thought it was a really interesting um, byproduct of the movement of the fountain to its current location is that this um, commitment to the creation of public art in the name of Franklin, uh, Benjamin Franklin Ferguson is something we can't see any longer. Um, and I kind of wonder if that has something to do with the ways in which the fund's uh, commitment changes over time too, or the board of trustees relationship to it changes over time. 
uh, as well. Um, I just think this is a kind of interesting hidden little piece of Chicago, uh, literally hidden by like fences, um, stuff like that. Uh, I'm gonna pause here for just a second for myself and for us. Before I uh, start to rant about the Logan Square, uh, Logan Square Memorial for just a tiny bit, I wanted to see if anyone had any thoughts or questions or any comments about the Fountain of the Great Lakes or any of the stuff thus far? Give my chance to sip some water. Oh, Nicole says the fountain gave me the furies and the sirens vibe. I think that that, I think that is a, a great insight and. One of the things that I am hoping to do more thinking about as this research goes forwards is the kind of um, the, uh, the gendering of the figures that are produced by the early Ferguson fund pieces. Um, Mark says it's not important really, but do we know if the fund was meant to last into perpetuity? Yes, yeah, that's a, thank you. Great question, Mark. Very clear, specific question. Uh, it, it still exists. Um, it's still uh, commissioning art. I think it hasn't unveiled a piece since the 1990s. Uh, if I'm like rumoring off the top of my head, but it's supposed to stay uh, in per perpetuity uh, at a million dollars in the fund. And in the early years of the fund, there's this really like fun way to fun way to track how much money is in the fund because it's presented in every annual report um, and they uh, usually it's not until it has that amount of money that they're willing to um, start giving it back out as commissions and stuff like that so it's still it's still around um, and technically should be producing and still technically maintaining pieces of art throughout the city of Chicago for sure all right, I'm gonna to try to do a hard transition into uh, a brief overview of the Logan, um, of the Logan Square Memorial here, also known as the Illinois Centennial Monument. Where are we going? Nope, bye. Okay, yes, this is something, again, the fun of the archives. I learned about something I did not know. Uh, before the decision to build um, the Centennial Monument. Initially, the site was identified, Logan Square was identified for a Cherry Mine Memorial. Uh, there was a disaster at a coal mine in 1909, I believe. Uh, Cherry, Illinois, I think was, it's like a couple hundred miles away from Chicago. Um, I can't quite remember. There is a now a memorial there. So for two years in a row, it's decided uh, that this, by the trustees, this comes from the annual report, um, the, the uh, report of the trustees, so Hutchison is part of this process, uh, that there's gonna be a fountain uh, as a memorial to this, this mine disaster and the people who lost their lives. I think it was 200 people lost their lives two years in a row. The location is decided, Logan Square. The following year, there's no mention of it. And the next year, 1914, it's decided that's where there's gonna be the Centennial Monument and Her uh, Henry Bacon, Harry Bacon. Henry Bacon has already put forward plans uh, to create a Doric column uh, referencing the, the Parthenon. Um, but I just felt like this was a, a helpful moment for me in researching this to think about two things. One, the possibility that there could have been something else there, not what we're about to see. 
And I feel like uh, that's really helpful for me in doing this research, which is about uh, possibility and difference. So seeing that there could have been another idea or seeing another possibility proposed for that space is really exciting to me. Uh, and there's a, to me, really interesting um, temporary change in emphasis for the trustees here and just imagining that they would produce something, uh, something about the use of the word comrades uh, is kind of surprising to me to see in a, a Art Institute document. And um, to think about this shift from creating a memorial to uh, labor, to um, failures of industry to keep people safe, uh, to creating a monument for Illinois and ostensibly the United States is a really um, notable shift to me at least. Uh, so I thought this was a really fun thing to see. There is a Cherry Mine Memorial uh, in a graveyard in Cherry, Illinois, I think that was created by um, some union, the union workers and union mine workers, I think in the area and a couple of years after this. Um, so just the oddities, what could have been but instead, uh, we got this. We got a, the Illinois Centennial Monument um, sculpted by Evelyn Longman, who uh, was a student of Laredo Taft uh, and went to the Art Institute. And here we see Henry Bacon again. He's the architect. Uh, and I think, um, yeah, he's the architect. He decides the, he decided the placement and designed the column. Um, so a couple things I just wanted to note, since some of us, I know I have experience or maybe even thoughts. I was really struck by the, uh, I spent a lot of time thinking about the relief sculpture at the bottom um, made by Evelyn Longman and the kind of narrative that it tells uh, on the two different sides. So on one side, we have this kind of allegorical representation. It's about, uh, I believe one source described it as the natural development of civilization, which I thought was a, a odd um, description because in some ways I, I read it as a narrative about how Illinois came to be um, the kind of place that it is or it was in, in maybe 1918 or how it developed in the minds of the people who are representing it here. Um, so it, it's a pretty clear progression from like ships, waterways to the, to the train, which would have been part of the creation of this um, kind of fantasy of abundance uh, wheat and corn. Um, I thought the idea of this being a progression of civilization misses the way to me that it's kind of backwards. It's that the ships and the trains were the things that brought the abundance um, rather than the abundance already being there to be uh, discovered. Um, maybe we can return to that as a, as a reflection here. And on the opposite side is supposed to be a sort of historical narrative about the replacement of the what we might call generic Indians, because it's not representative of any particular uh, group being replaced by uh, first, I think this is supposed to be uh, maybe Father Marquette, um, and eventually the formation of the United States of America um, with the colonial dress appearing on this far right figure. And then meeting in the middle is a figure of, of Illinois, uh, wrote here. Um, something that started to occur to me, um, oh, I didn't say anything about the specs of this build. Sorry, I uh, forgot to share some specifics. Is there another picture of it? Yes, let's start with this thing. One of the things that I uh, was really struck by as I started to um, research this stuff more, uh, 
particularly this um, piece since I live in Logan Square, is uh, its specifics. Um, and in particular, this eight-ton marble eagle uh, is just really wild to me to think about an eight-ton marble eagle. Uh, one, since I've been doing this kind of play throughout the conversation uh, about vision and like the Ferguson Fund, we can't see the thing that's on the back. Uh, one piece of research I found about the memorial that really struck me was that there is a 40-foot anchor into the hard pan uh, concrete foundation, which is supposed to keep it stable. Um, and I'm hoping that we can maybe kind of come back to that idea uh, of these not only being something that we see um, above ground, but it's also something that is sunk into the earth uh, in some cases at least in the case of the Centennial Monument, um, which to me, trying to think about this idea of not just an image above ground, but something that is so deeply anchored in the earth really challenges, at least for me, the idea of uh, what do you do with these kinds of things if uh, walking around representations of uh, what we might, I think, not ungenerously call, at least I call um, these narratives of uh, white settlement, their manifest destiny narratives, um, as there is no contestation, there's just a natural progress that's at least represented. Um, that the challenge of these is not only the representations that they have, but also in the ways in which they affect our thinking about space above and, and below ground. Um, maybe that's something that we'll get to talk about in, in just a second. Uh, Partly why I'm really fascinated with the Logan Square Memorial, I'm just going to go back to the general picture, is because I like to go there often and sit and do some reading or whatever, staring at people. And I'm always, I guess I'm doing it too, I'm always just struck by the ways in which uh, like people walk by the pieces and the representations and the narratives and don't seem to... Uh, either know how to read them or um, seem to notice the things that they're showing or representing. Um, and I, I'm kind of fascinated in this way in which these objects become something we see all the time and yet kind of uh, just walk past also um, in a kind of passive way. I think we'll get back to that uh, in just a second. Um, I find this, this uh, very fascinating. Uh, one quick piece that I just wanted to mention here. So 1918, again, is the year in which this is um, dedicated. Over the figure of Illinois here is this uh, carving, which is a little difficult to see in this, uh, in this particular um, picture, but it says national sovereignty, sorry, state sovereignty, national unity. Uh, and I started to think about, and I think this is part of a future research to, to think about that as, as a sentiment, um, uh, state sovereignty, sovereignty, national unity as the attempt to sort of, um, I put it in conversation with some of the uh, civil war monuments that are being made around in the early 20th century and the attempt to sort of reconstitute something like a, a United States that is put together, that is able to balance um, a fantasy of both state sovereignty and national unity. Um, so, so I see this uh, monument as kind of being in conversation um, with these other pieces that are being produced across across the country. I'm going to speed up just a tiny bit so we can chat about some things. Uh, so some changes happened to the fund that I think are worth noting. It's very active um, essentially from 1905 when it's made until 
1929. Uh, and then there's a real gap in um, commissions at all. Uh, so some of the things that change is after Hutchison dies, Charles Hutchison, who is described by one Art Institute publication as the prime mover, uh, kind of like an Aristotelian prime mover of the Art Institute. Um, after he dies, there is some changes in the administration and in a 1926 annual report is the first time you see something like the Ferguson Fund Committee. So this becomes five or six people, sometimes seven, who are listed in every annual report as essentially in charge of the Ferguson Fund. The annual reports stop providing any kind of expository updates about what is being created or the conversations that are going on within the committee. Uh, at least the annual report is not the place where you find those kinds of things. Um, then in a moment that is described by uh, an article I found as like uh, one of the worst abuses of a trust fund and and uh, public history or something like that. 1933, the Art Institute essentially try, takes, um, goes to court and asks for an expansion of the notion of monument to include a building. Um, so they save up the funds for 25 years um, to pay for this building that is the <laughs> Ferguson, not Franklin, Memorial Building. Uh, in 1958 is when this opens. Um, so I always, I have this interesting question in mind is like, should we think of a building as a, as a monument? Was that the intention of that particular fund, I guess is maybe a better way to put it. Um, and this article uh, essentially argues no. Um, so it's in the seventies where you see a return to the commission, uh, the, the fund producing regular commissions. Interestingly to me, it's worth noting that the commissions are increasingly more abstract. Um, so we move away from the representational uh, men and women kind of uh, representations of the earlier fund. Um, and this is where I'm going to kind of pause on the history of the fund real quick, because I think there's there's definitely more to say. Uh, oh, yeah, this is this is. Uh, classic me slide. Uh, I'm going to try to whip through it really quickly. So I've been doing research into the fund for off and on for a year and most specifically looking at AIC document Art Institute documents for probably the last six months or so. So this is just stuff that I've that's coming out of the research coming out of the various kinds of readings and conversations and stuff like that. Um, it's a little incoherent, but I'm going to see I hope that it's something uh, of a reflection. So um, I feel like there's something interesting about the connection between cultural institutions shaping the city space through public art and wealthy philanthropic trustees. I feel like this is an important part of the research, um, which is related to me, uh, questions over who should have power over city space, uh, who should have power over the material environment. Um, Another way I've been thinking about this is who controls the background, um, which is related to something that is mentioned in a, uh, at the dedication of the Ferguson Fountain about Chicago lacking a background. Uh, another thing that's coming out of the research for me is the use of public art to produce uh, a narrative of Chicago in the United States as the history of white progress and the kind of manifest destined uh, replacement of indigenous people. I feel like that's what we see a lot in the particularly in the, um, the bridge house pieces. Um, 
So the question I think related to this is like the Chicago Monuments Project, partly like what do we do with the monuments? Uh, are they adaptable? Do they have to be removed? Do we leave them as they are and just live with this history? Do we create a special, special place? I feel like this is some of the questions of what do we do with these representations that we walk by all the time and uh, just kind of related to a turn um, in the Ferguson Funds commissions is less representational are able to better represent the public. Um, and then this piece that I'm still thinking a lot about, which is how we navigate the continued presence of the past, <laughs> continued presence of the past and the present. Uh, and part of what I mean is, do we see what we walk by and we walk around? Um, and how do those things impact us? What kind of histories do they carry? Um, unbeknownst to us, how are we being, uh, how is the space that we navigate uh, full of these histories that we don't see that shape us and shape the movements that we make um, as we move through the city. Um, and with that, I'm just gonna stop there, pause, say thank you for being patient. That was a long amount of talking. Uh, I, want to first just again give myself a pause so I can take a drink of water and maybe uh, start to open up mostly just kind of curious about comments, questions, things that seemed a little unclear. I was throwing a lot of the research um, at you so it may have been a little bit confusing. Um, so yeah, maybe we can just kind of pause for a second and if you have comments or questions or thoughts or anything, feel free to chime in or write them in the chat. Maybe if you have something to say, you can introduce yourself, just like your first name. Nice, yes, Nicole. Post the research questions. Is the bridge houses pieces, the bridge house pieces in particular include a relief which finally commemorates the first white uh, men uh, to cross the Chicago River, knowing the first men crossed long before the Taylor This is true, and the research uh, that I was doing in all of these books, um, Dusab's name doesn't come up um, in any of the conversations. One of the pieces that is commissioned by the fund in its early period is um, a portrait of uh, Father Marquette that I believe is still up. And it's one of the pieces that's been identified for conversation about what to do with it. I mean, I think the bridge house is a great example. What do you do with those? What do you do with that? And not just the bridge houses, but thinking about it as this environment in relationship to like representations and relief figures that are on the buildings nearby also. Um, we got a microphone on Agnes, what you got? Oh, yeah, I guess I did. I was gonna start trying to start a video, but you have, um, you've stopped video share. I just want you to know, <laughs> it's not a big deal. No more share. <laughs> um, well, I guess like, I just wanted to hear you reflect on, um, you think a lot about memorials and like, um, I was thinking about how, okay, so like memorials are sometimes about like memorializing something that happened that we don't want to forget. 
and then like they're also about making something like real and permanent and like this is the way it was so sort of making you know the kind of like the manifest destiny history thing and I'm sure there's all kinds of things that memorials do besides those two things um roughly <laughs> and I guess I just wanted to hear you just say more about like in your as you've been like researching these things which I don't think about that often like what you know like what sorts of thoughts have you had about why it is that we make these we uh, rich people humans whatever people who want to control public space <laughs> yeah anyway just like riff riff on that I guess <laughs> thank you uh yeah. I'll, I'll try I'll try my best um one of the things that I found recurring a lot of the books that I was reading is this idea that like sculpture and monument is a universal process across time, um, which I feel uh, f fine, I guess. What I started to become interested in is the way in which the pieces work inside of a particular time at a particular moment. Um, so I feel like it was hard not to see a lot of the pieces as the attempt to construct a particular vision. So what is a memorial for? It seems like it's used to tell a particular kind of story in some senses. Mm -hmm. um, I was really, I'm gonna kind of like use your question as a chance to pivot uh, real quick and share one more other thing that is not research related. Um, great, great. One of the things I started to be really fascinated by, I was on a walk and saw that at the um, Masaryk Memorial on the south side, some of you who live in Hyde Park have, are already aware of this, there was this repurposing mm -hmm. of, or I think I called it an entry extended purposing of the Masaryk Memorial to become a Breonna Taylor Memorial. And these uh, little signs were all made by a, a class at one of the art, um, sorry, lab school, uh, kindergarten, second grade, can't remember what uh, grade they were. Um, a teacher had them make uh, some signs. And I was really struck by how, despite the maybe initial intention of Alban Polasek, uh, who also created um, the Spirit of Music, uh, there's something else happening in this space. Like um, it's been repurposed independent of its, independent of its original purpose. Mm -hmm. So I guess part of what I started to be interested in is not why people make memorials, but like what do we do with the memorials that we find? Um, if that, I don't know if yeah. that quite makes, um, I don't know if that quite answers your question. No, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I guess like in this case, um, I guess I, I was sort of just thinking about the temporality of memorials when I started asking you, like there are like memor memories past directed, but they're obviously also future directed in the sense that they um, are trying to intervene in reality in some way, like that, like the Brianna um, Taylor Memorial, like the repurposing of it is, obviously that something like that kind of intervention or something like to retell what you know to change who matters in history um yeah anyway I'll let other people uh, uh, no, I, I love it <laughs> thank you um and I, I think one of the things that for for the Breonna Taylor that I started to think about is 
that there is a conversation between the piece and its repurposing, mm -hmm. that they're not separate. It's not like just a paste on top of that, um, whether intentionally or unintentionally, there is this kind of, there becomes this conversation between uh, the calls for justice for Breonna Taylor and something about what is represented mm -hmm. in this um, figure of independence. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna turn to Dorothy's question just real quick. Yeah, yeah. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you for the beautiful presentation. Thank you. It was fascinating. Thanks. Um, Dorothy asks, do you find any evidence that the fund of the artist who has made any attempts to provide context for the inherent racism, sexism of past verses and sculptures? That's a great question. Um, I, I have not found uh, that evidence. I'd say like just at the beginning there. Um, it's to kind of sidestep the question in some ways too. It's interesting to me to think about the pieces, uh, to think about the creation of this project by the city um, to address these kinds of issues, which is, removes the conversation from the power of uh, legacy institutions like the Art Institute and places it on, uh, seems like it places it in another place, the responsibility of those kinds of things. Um, that's a really wonderful question. What I, I maybe uh, would want to inquire also was, would that context be helpful in the ways in which we look or interact with some of the pieces, the bridge houses, but even, you know, if we entertain the possibility that the Ferguson Fountain's timeless characters, um, right, aren't timeless, and in their attempt to be timeless, they are in dialogue with a refusal to use, um, I don't know, representations of indigenous people. Uh, Eric, can I yes. ask a, a follow-up or make a comment, which is a follow-up to that? Uh, I, I've seen, uh, museums in uh, the UK, primarily the Victoria and Albert and the Tate Museum both in 2007, uh, which was the year that uh, Great Britain was uh, commemorating the ending of the slave trade. Uh, and I've seen those notable, very old institutions create uh, context within their uh, regular uh, exhibits of the place of, in the case of uh, that commemoration, uh, the history of the slave trade that goes unseen in their regular exhibits until it's pointed out. And uh, I was very impressed with that. Granted, that was some years ago, but these were, you know, august institutions that had every reason never to change because they were so august. And Art Institute seems to me to be in that same kind of position. They have a great august power and presence and therefore seem to me to have the greater responsibility for providing the general public and the people who come to visit the museum with that kind of content. Um, but if you haven't found anything, I'm betting there isn't any. Uh, I definitely need to keep, to keep looking and obviously the goal of being in uh, in the boxes is to see how these kinds of conversations in the archives rather is to see how these kinds of conversations play out and are recorded inside of the institution itself. Um, 
again, I'm struck by this kind of play between uh, this this sense of art institute being the uh, the enrichers of the public space uh, of Chicago, because I see that as part of what the Ferguson Fund allows is for a form of public power through private money. Um, which I think is a little different than, or, or seems like a, a challenge to provide context for when these pieces are scattered throughout the city. So it's not like um, putting up, uh, you know, signs inside of a, um, putting up like information uh, inside of a gallery. Um, yeah, but I like I like that thing. I'm gonna, just, I'm gonna turn to Becky's thought here. I think part of the way we can get at answers to your research questions, think about who the public is, how publics are or what we mean when we use the word public. It seems like these particular monuments as public art tend to shape a national narrative for public that may not access art in a more private, ooh, museum or space. Yes, of course, sorry, a narrative. Oh, uh, a narrative by those in power that describes why they believe their power is legit. No, yeah, I think that that seems, I think that seems uh, absolutely right. I wanna like kind of use an anecdote that maybe will resonate um, or maybe it won't. Uh, uh, I was talking with a friend as we were uh, looking at one of the Ferguson pieces and they said, I, this is boring to me. I don't ever think about this stuff because I don't see myself in these kinds of pieces of art. I don't think they have anything to do with me and therefore I just walk by and ignore them. Um, which on the one hand, I felt like, yeah, I understand uh, having that feeling and that disposition. Um, and in some ways, you know, I kind of agreed with their sense that it didn't feel like a space, not just to, not just a piece of art, but it didn't feel like a space in which that uh, person felt welcome. Um, I think that is partly about the projection of uh, the notion of public maintained by these pieces. But what I tried to ask this person to think about is how much power they're giving over to that space when they say that space isn't for me, I can't go there or this wasn't intended for me. Um, to think about what other kinds of things are being allowed through in that instance, uh, what else is being left in, in place? Um, or to put it a little bit clearly, I just asked them like, why don't you feel like you can be in this space? Like, let's talk about that. I love that you just said that. Um, it resonates with me so much because that's how I became acquainted with the art on the Michigan Avenue Bridge. I was like your friend. I just kind of waltzed past all of these public monuments because they didn't mean anything to me. I wasn't represented in any of them. And yeah, I just would walk past them. And then one day I happened to notice that there was a teeny tiny little bust of Jean-Baptiste Pont du Sable um, just adjacent to the now du Sable Bridge, which was always called the Michigan Avenue Bridge um, until recently. And I stopped to look at that bust. So in looking at the bust, I just kind of had an aha moment and took in all of the art that was on the Michigan Avenue Bridge. And I was just awestruck when I came across the relief that I mentioned that, that you looked at the, the slide that you showed us of the, the reenactment of the, um, the battle at Fort Deborn, was it? Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. 
But just below that, there is a, a relief that says the first white men to pass through the Chicago River, September 16, 1773. And I just stood on the bridge for an, a, a very long amount of time, just gazing at that, not even realizing that I have lived in Chicago all of my life and I have walked past that those words all of my life without even stopping to recognize them. And then once I did, um, the feeling was really disturbing. Um, so I, I feel what your friend was sharing with you very much. Thank you, Nicole. Um, I, I think that is a strange part of this for, for me is, is the idea of what we walk past. Um, and in a certain sense, of course, we have to like go about our lives. We have things to do, we have appointments and stuff. So what would it mean to stop and look at this and, and have these feelings uh, or you know, register this, uh, these pieces of art as something that feels upsetting? Um, there is this question about how useful it is, but I also think that it seems um, important as a person living in the place where you are to see uh, the history that is surrounding us because I think it shapes us as much as those appointments that we are rushing off to or um, anything else. I, I feel like there's a, a entry in the blog where I tried to think about um, how much uh, subtle power over us that space has. Um, the way that it shapes us. And in thinking about, as, as I like to do, and with my friends, I like to do uh, imagining change and imagining a world, uh, like going back to my friend, that doesn't feel like this is a place that's not for me um, because of this, uh, this fountain or this statue. Um, what else is possible? I think first you have to ask, um, or start to notice what's there and how it how it shapes you independent of your, or maybe in addition to your thoughts and your feelings about it. I hope that makes sense for the last track. No, it makes sense. It makes perfect sense. I would reimagine it by commemorating the first people to cross the Chicago River just on that one piece of art um, in particular, because the first ones to cross definitely were not white men. So if you want to commemorate something, let's tell the truth. Other thoughts and responses, questions? Well, I have another question. <laughs> um, oh wait, Mark has a question. So you should go to Mark's question first and then I'll just, just ask me later. Yeah, uh, is the fund still housed at the Art Institute? So the, from what I have gathered, the way that the fund is administered has changed over time. Um, and the last little bit of reading I was doing, it seems like there has been historically, more recently, somebody who is kind of overseeing it, who's like in charge of the Ferguson Fund, but it's still being administered through the through the Art Institute. Still, still occurring. So ostensibly still funds that could be used to 
fun public art, fun public monuments. Um, to me, I'm really interested in this change that starts to happen and I hope to research a little bit more and eventually we'll share with all of you in the future um, is to think about, oh, is to think about how, um, to think about the relationship between the two forms of, of kind of commemoration that take place in the different, the different periods. So what are the conversations that are happening around giving uh, uh, for creating the Richard Hunt piece or creating the 19, the bicentennial um, sculpture that is at the back of the School of the Art Institute by an artist whose name I'm blanking on at the top of my head. Um, like how do these, uh, how do the older pieces relate to these newer pieces? And how can we think about them not as separate periods, but as being in conversation with each other through the fund? Um, almost like trying to kind of going back to Dorothy's uh, insight earlier, almost like using the second half of the fund as an attempt to uh, expand on uh, in a different way. Um, it's an initial focus on uh, indigenous people in the history of the, of the Midwest. Hey, would you describe the work that you make as also being in conversation with these pieces or do you think about that as being a different kind of relationship? Yeah, thank, thank you for asking that. Um, I don't, yeah, it's kind of hiding back here. This thing is uh, an attempt to paint the Fountain of the Great Lakes. Um, the way I think about the paintings is trying to make representations that uh, kind of disrupt some of the naturalness of the images. Um, so particularly like the Fountain of the Great Lakes, uh, I was interested in the, in trying to think about this statement of, uh, of Taft as I was, I was painting it as well. And partly I think my goal is always to create visions that are a little bit unsettling, to unsettle the way in which one might relate to the pieces they exist now. Um, to try to do in art what I think is use what I have found useful for myself through the research, which is like uh, denaturalizing what's there, making it strange rather than making it feel obvious, uh, like it's always been there. Um, so I think it is, it is definitely in conversation with uh, as much the kind of theoretical stuff too. So I'm trying to think about these long histories that I feel like these pieces embody, um, which is a kind of, extremely abstract piece of this uh, work that I'm still trying to figure out is to see, to track kind of changes over time and changes over resources so that we can see something like the deforestation that's taking place in the 19th century in relationship to control over, over urban space, rather than thinking that these are two different processes to kind of put them in conversation with each other. And uh, I think that's hard <laughs> in a weird way. I think sometimes the art is a little bit easier of a place to try to think through those than my brain or in conversation with other people because it can be looser and 
yeah, just th thinking in a different way. Thanks for asking about the paintings. Any other, yeah. Oh, so, okay. Well, my, I, now I have a second. So my two sort of like related questions are, I wanted to hear if you had more to say about um, the relationship between the fund and, and the, uh, the, Columbia, the 1893 World Fair, the Colombian Exposition, whatever it was called. Um, and I didn't really have anything to say about that because it's like, right, it was like a way for Chicago to show like that it was a cosmopolitan, like real city. Like I know there was this competition with New York to, to get it. And uh, I don't know, just whatever else you know about it, because here. But secondly, I also remembered about the Armory Show in 1913, where all of these, like the first time ever, well, you know, like the first museum after, you know, New York, I think that they, like all these modernists are uh, like master masterpieces that we know, that we like Matisse and Van Gogh and like um, Picasso again, like they're shown in a, in a museum space for the first time in America. And I, I know that like the industrialists these like rich industrialists that you were kind of talking about were also like big um i think they were also big funders of this kind of thing or like they bought up a lot of those museums a lot of those paintings and stuff that could be could be wrong about that so i don't know i guess i was sort of thinking about like oh yeah that like 1913 is this like big moment as i'm looking on the internet i don't know that off the top of my head it's this big huge moment for modernism in chicago and then um and in the U.S. in general, it's like the first time a lot of people are introduced to these these things. Um, and I don't know. I guess I was just wondering if there's any connection that you know about, or really like, or feelings about that. But I'd also be curious to hear more about the relationship to the World Fair and like the way Burnham was was seeing, um, like art at the time or whatever you were you started talking about in relation to the fund. Yeah, so like whatever, it, whichever of those things you have things to say about. <laughs> thank you. It feels, uh, 1893 feels very intimidating. Uh, the more I read about it, the less I feel like I know, just because it seems so um, big and sprawling uh, as an undertaking and also the implications of it. Uh, I think you're right, not only about showing Chicago as this uh, world, a world city, but uh, clearly there's something there about the imposition of a sense of unified order, right? Like a mm -hmm. city that is created out of nothing that has an order that the city and its natural development lacks, right? Um, yeah. Particularly thinking about some of the, uh, I feel like um, some people on the call know this a little bit better than I do. Some of the writing about cities in the late 19th century and early 20th century, thinking about it as a site of like, uh, yeah, I mean, chaos and disorder and the masses and all those kinds of uh, things so the the white city was supposed to be an example of an order an orderly you know planned uh, city as a kind of proof of concept um, let's see what else I would want to say the only thing that I found really interesting I couldn't find the note uh, to think about the difference between the just thinking about sculpture and Ferguson fun stuff is the uh, Republic in its initial uh, this is what I read from what I remember, don't quote me, I don't, I need to find the source. The yeah, initial yeah. Republic uh, had white arms and white face. So it was left as the plaster and the rest of it was gilded. Um, but in the replica currently on the South side, it's, uh, it's been entirely gilded. And I found there to be something really, again, this play uh, and vision um, uh, in how that kind of a change um, mm -hmm. changes the piece in general. Um, but yeah, it's such a, it's such a, 
it's such a difficult time. It's such a difficult event for me to, to wrap my, Mm -hmm. to wrap my head around. Um, just because it feels like it has so many different pieces, not only related to like, uh, I've been, I started thinking a lot about the statues of, uh, animals throughout the fair. Uh, and again, this kind of attempt to represent an America that's no longer Mm -hmm. there. Um, or an America that's disappearing or a sense of, you know, indigenate, uh, yeah, like native life that is now only able to be mm-hmm. <laughs> captured in these uh, totally static de- decorative ways. Um, yeah, it's fun. I feel like there's a lot more that I need to do mm-hmm. and eventually there'll definitely be a, uh, a post on the on the website about uh, 1893 and, and how much it meant for the Ferguson Fund because I do think that it was an important moment for what would eventually be uh, Ferguson's decision to give a million dollars to the to the city and how that money got used, I think, I had a lot to do. Not only because it was given, like, to make a replica of a statue that was at the core of 1893. Um, so many of the figures and so many of the kind of ideas that I think the Ferguson Fund pursues were were really present in a nascent way in 1893. Mm-hmm. Um, Armory show. I feel like I don't know. No, I don't know very yeah. much. About, except that I thought that it was like uh, people got really outraged by it. Oh yeah, like there was a bunch of essays, like famously essay students were really mad about Matisse. <laughs> That's all I really know. I don't know that much about it either. I was just thinking about like everything I knew about like art patronage in that period, and the Armory Show came to mind. Yeah, I think uh, I wish I, I wish I knew a little bit more. Um, I, I know a lot of the readings that I looked at mostly emphasize how stuffy the like a wealthy elite of the <laughs> of 19th century and, and early 20th century Chicago were and how I do feel like though a lot of those like kind of um industrialist dudes like bought up that or I don't know probably other people might maybe somebody else on this call knows about this but it doesn't really matter to your purposes <laughs> but th- thank you <laughs> for sure uh maybe one more thought question general response here and then we'll we can go a little bit early Does anybody have a feeling of what to do with the pieces? I'd love to hear like one thought about that. Just cause that's to me like one of the finest conversations. What do we do with this stuff? The Golden Lady is on the list of the Chicago Monuments Project for conversation for removal. Yeah, I feel so. I know I'm just like talk infinitely, but like I just feel like with listening to your talk, I was sort of thinking like, is there, can we like a is there the possible is it possible is a state funded public monument like that being a good thing like possible? You know what I mean? Like even if it was one that was like okay, like let's say Chicago made like a, 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 a public statue of like that was commemorating like indigenous genocide wouldn't that also just feel like empty and false in some ways or something like that um I don't know I'm not sure I just wonder like I wonder if if you can have like you can like reclaim the statues in the ways that people have or you can demand that we um like tear them down which all seem seem good to me but I wonder if we can ever feel I don't know I don't know if I I don't I don't I would say no maybe like to feeling like unambivalently like good about a, a state-sponsored work of art or I mean I guess these aren't states but I don't know I guess they have to be since they're using public space so in that way so 
they work with like uh, the, so this is what's interesting to me about this stuff. The South Park Commission works with Art Institute to get the Ferguson Fund, uh, sorry, to get the, the Fountain of the Great Lakes put in place. But the people who are part of the South Park Commission are very close with the people who are on the board of trustees and who are connected to the people at the board of trade. Like there's a very close connection between a lot of these, yeah. these figures in these institutions. Um, but I wanted to maybe do a little riffing here as I end, as we wrap up, <laughs> to, to just kind of do some meditation on, on alternatives. Um, a couple of things that have come to mind more recently with the question of like, what do we do with these spaces is I was reading a book on gender in the city by somebody who teaches at um, IIT, I'm forgetting uh, this person's name, um, who is talking about the uh, agitation on behalf of uh, various groups to have public bathrooms built, um, women's groups in the 1890s and early 20th centuries to have public bathrooms built for free in the city. Um, and the book, uh, which I'm happy to give the name of at a later moment, um, talks about how there was a refusal by some of the figures that we've talked about um, to use public space in this kind of a way. So I've been kind of obsessed with the idea of all of the statues now just being public toilets that are free and <laughs> clean. Uh, and to think about what a lovely thing that would be. Uh, that would for, be beautiful. For everyone. Beautiful. Um, but like I had another one that I was gonna mention, but I think I, um, I spaced on it. The bathroom one is just too, is, is too good. Uh, yeah is too good in my opinion. Oh, the other one that occurred to me is uh, to think about how different forms of, again, memorializing uh, is the use of um, non-represent, like uh, other forms of spatial relations. So I'm thinking about the like mound that's the serpent mound, I think that it is, that's being built in Horner Park by Santiago X. Uh, so I feel like the way that we usually think about making public um, pieces is in this very, uh, like we've seen this evening. Um, but I think it's worth considering other, it's not necessarily forms, other ways of creating a kind of public space. Um, I have to do obviously a little bit more thinking about this, but I'm really, uh, the history of the mound cultures in this area uh, and the destruction of the mounds over time um, seems like a, a, an important possibility uh, that is already being pursued as a form of something like public art or public space making. Um, but we'll have to have more on that. Well, thank you. Yes, thank you all so much for sharing some time this evening and for listening to me talk a lot. Uh, that was very kind of you. Um, I hope that this was in some ways interesting and edifying. And uh, I would love to hear any feedback that you have. Feel free to email me. Um, yeah, thank you again for the time. And I hope to see you all soon. Bye, everybody. Thank you, Eric, really nice. Thanks, Dorothy.